Thank you, Zach. Well, happy 2022. I heard, I saw a meme speaking of what I will speak of here in a second is the power of the information and memes being something that perhaps we pay a little bit too much attention to. But someone said that 2020, number two, and I don't, I don't think I like that meme very much. But the good news is that what we will share today is that no matter what comes our way in 2022, we have a, a sure hope. Um, for those that don't know me, my name is John Klobuchar. I'm one of the deacons here. Um, I'm also recently became the full, uh, second full-time chaplain with Barry Chaplains. Uh, as of November 1st, it was an unexpected opening. I had been serving on the board for years, volunteer and such. Um, had recently finished seminary, gone through ordination, and this Lord opened this opportunity and um, November 1st um, hit. And it's been an interesting two months, to say the least. I had done jail and prison ministry before, an intern for a while, and certainly COVID makes it a little bit different, but doing it full-time, I, I can say that I'm still acclimating. I will probably continue to acclimate for a long time. Uh, one thing I did want to point out is I want to thank everyone for their participation in Christmas Joy. Um, I, when I got there on November 1st, uh, I think everything was, we set a deadline for November 15th, so I had to figure everything out in 15 days, how to get it there and get the requests out. And uh, this church um, has always uh, participated, been one of the key supporters of Christmas Joy, and that's because of you. And I want to uh, especially thank Jenny Spandoria for her work in that. That was, uh, uh, it's a huge blessing. The feedback we get from those that are incarcerated uh, when their families receive the gifts is, is, is amazing. Um, and, and, it, and it also provides us an opportunity to, um, uh, for, to engage them with the gospel. Um, we have about 800 people who are incarcerated there. And believe it or not, our, our engagement with them is, is, is often limited by a number of factors. And this is one of the key ways that they will uh, reach out to us, ask for them to visit with them, and then we can share the gospel. So back to the idea of memes and information. Um, who here is overwhelmed with the amount of information that we have at hand? Um, we live in a time where there's just an abundance of choices of information, where we, where we get our information from, uh, what that information says, what that information's intentions are. Um, and here's, uh, here's a hint, not all of it's true. But not necessarily all of it's false either. And that, but that can create tensions for us, right? It can create tensions for us what to believe, what to listen to, who to listen to, what information is correct. And much of that information is geared to manipulate our thinking and commit us to believe something in order to move us, to support some cause, or perhaps to buy something we didn't know we needed five minutes ago. Yet there, is always, there will always be a battle for our hearts and our minds on the more sublime issue of what we ought to believe and know about matters related to God. To commit to learn from God's word is acknowledging the reality of this battle for what we believe. When Paul talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, we learn it is this commitment to seek and better understand what God has revealed to us about him, and more specifically, Jesus Christ is the actual spiritual weaponry we must take up in the spiritual warfare we find ourselves in. We will look at First uh, John chapter four today, verses one through six, and today, and hopefully, we walk uh, walk away with a better understanding of why 
it's so vital. Why it's so vital to figure out what we need to listen to, who we need to listen to, the right voice, the right spirit. An important principle for us to consider is what we believe is often predicated on who we trust as a source of our information. And our commitment to trust a source is vital to what we believe and know to be true. Once we commit to believe something and listen to sources that support what we believe, it's often hard to change our perspective because we have committed to believe be- what we have committed to believe becomes the thing that we now order our lives around. Depending on what it is, it may even shift our thinking and assumptions about God. So it fits into the design we want to live our lives. God becomes the God we want rather than the God who is. For some of us, it is rooted in the influence we've had in our lives. And this does cut both ways. There's a power in propaganda. Um, And certainly, with the information that we see out there now, there's plenty of propaganda. Plenty of people who want your attention, want to creating you a way of think. But if we go back, and I should, I should have actually tested this with my spouse. She's the World War II buff, I'm not. But if you go back to World War II, you'll see how the propaganda machines, really, really of everyone involved in it, but part, particularly of Japan and Germany, were some of the most influenced, influential in history. How they moved their entire cultures and people towards an extreme nationalism to support causes, really evil causes. In particular, Japan was able to leverage their own culture's commitment to honor and ingrained an unparalleled commitment to nationalism. The commitment to said beliefs was profound in the examples from their armed forces, from the tragic mass suicides by troops because shame of surrender to the desperation to win at all costs using uh, pilots who would kill themselves um, as bombs, as kamikazes. Another remarkable example was the phenomenon known as Japanese holdouts. Um, for different reasons, I found this absolutely fascinating. Maybe I shouldn't be using this illustration, maybe because it's fascinating. But, but there were hundreds of Japanese soldiers for a period of nearly 30 years that refused to surrender their posts. The most famous was Lieutenant Hiru Onoda, who held out on a Philippine island for nearly 30 years. So committed to what he believed, he conducted guerrilla warfare against the locals to stay alive. Men maintained his post. He was even killing local farmers in order to steal food in there and stay alive. I, I cannot imagine how he did this for 30 years, but he did. His commitment was based on faithfulness to what he was ordered to do and believe the cause of Japan. The standing order of most militaries usually require that you stand your post until properly relieved. Anyone been to boot camp? Yeah, yeah. That's your first general order. It's, 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 one, it's the one I remember. He will stand your post until properly relieved. In the case of Lieutenant Hiro Anada, it was also his disbelief that the war had indeed ended that drove him to maintain his post until properly ordered to be or, or relieved. He even admitted later that the leaflets he received following the war were merely allied propaganda. Remarkably, this commitment to what he believed uh, what he believed was right lasted until 1974 when Japan sent his former commanding officer, Major Taniguchi, to order him to relieve his station. It was only then that Lieutenant Onoda finally surrendered to then-President 
Ferdinand Marcos, a, nearly th a near 30 years after formal surrender of Japan. In fact, it was actually earlier that year that a fellow Jap Japanese man actually was looking for him and found him and told him the war is over. He wouldn't even believe him. He had to actually receive the orders from his commanding officer because that was what he was committed to listen to in order to leave his post. Today we are looking, or continuing our study in the first John and looking at the first six verses of chapter four and considering who are we listening to? We'll be looking at first, first John and discerning who it is we ought to listen to. If you, uh, go ahead and turn there in your text and if you could stand as we do as we receive God's word. First John, chapter four, Verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets has gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Please pray with me. God, I pray as we look at your word today that we are more and more convinced of who we ought to listen to, where we get our information from, God. We are surrounded, overwhelmed with information about what we ought to believe. And not all of it is true. Not all of it directs us towards you. So God, as we look at your text today, may it commit or create in us a firm desire to listen for what your spirit is telling us. For your sake, amen. Please be seated. Now, first John winds around. It winds around, and it's got, it's got key th themes that stays on and such, but these, these six verses can almost seem like um, an accident. Why are they here? Yet, I think as we unfold and, and look at this, it becomes abundantly clear why John has this sitting right in the middle of his long discussion and discourse on our love for others and God's love for us. In verses 1 through 3, we see that, that discerning who we listen to <clears throat> begins by testing the prophet's message. For God, because he saw, he felt, he experienced Jesus Christ directly and is now experiencing the Holy Spirit, he is understandably pleading with his beloved as their elder to know the certainty of their hope. Here John is again addressing them as beloved, those he clearly knows and he considers himself in fellowship with because they are in Christ with him. He knows they need to be discerning 
of what they hear because the consequences, <clears throat> excuse me, are a matter of knowing or a certainty or where, the certainty of where our hope lies. Therefore, John gives them two important exhortations, which are both imperatives or commands in the Greek. The first one is negative. It says, do not believe every spirit. And the second one is a positive command. Test the spirits. In other words, do not, do not commit to believing someone unless you have first tested the spirit that is influencing the prophet or teacher. A little bit of background is for a first century person, the choice of who you believe was critical because it was overwhelmingly an oral culture. They learned by hearing. They learned by what people would say to them. They depended on those that had information, had knowledge. And the access to information was limited to what they would be told. Their access to what they might believe and order their lives around was absolutely dependent on those that would teach them. And this was highly dependent on how convincing and charismatic the teacher was. In particular, those John was addressing would favor teachers who were charismatic and confident because it would be at, uh, be at least appeared that they were being influenced by the Holy Spirit. In biblical cultures, the, the belief in a spiritual realm was nearly universal. And those who sounded like they had special insight, or specifically spiritual insight, they were the most influential. Once they gained such influence, they could hold strong and convincing power over a body of people and what they believed because that culture craved information that was coming from the spiritual realm. What might be different for them from us is the nature of how they tended to understand the spiritual realm. These communities are often referred to historically in literature as pneumatic communities. Uh, the word pneumatic is, is, in Greek, is what we have translated here as spirit. Um, and uh, these communities had a belief in the supernatural world that was generally different than our Western world and believed in the, the continual presence and influence of spiritual beings. This is why John is using the term here in the plural because his audience would assume a spiritual influence over those who taught. The assumption here is those he was writing to were likely influenced by these teachers because they assumed it was the Holy Spirit. Yet the message they are tempted to listen to and believe is coming from false teachers. And John wants to make it abundantly clear the source of their message is not coming from who they think it is. Here John is addressing believers. They were likely aware of you know, the necessity of listening to the Holy Spirit because they were believers. But they lacked some discernment skills to distinguish which was which. What made these teachers influential is they, they were formerly among the church assembly. Or they were the very false teachers that at least influenced them, the one, those that left the community. When we look back in chapter 2, we read about these who, are, these who are termed antichrist and false teachers. They are the ones who went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. And this is why John is imploring them not to believe every spirit, but rather commit themselves to test the spirits. And this is the same for us. Not everyone who claims they are representing God is necessary to be trusted and then believed. Our commitment needs to be to the same because false prophets are still prevalent. We must 
commit to discern the origin of what is presented to see, as we, we see John for his audience, it is central to his letter under the reality of false prophets. We can be easily swayed by the passion and confidence of someone, particularly if we ourselves are ungrounded in what we believe. So early in my Christian walk, this was, this was an issue for me. I hadn't developed the, the discernment that I needed to test the, test the messengers, test those that I heard from. Now, a few of you I know remember Dr. Paul LaCour. Does, I know Phil does. Anyone else? Paul LaCour, ring a bell? No, really? Dr. Love? That was his nickname, Dr. Love. I think he passed, I think he passed away in 2016. When Cindy and I actually started attending First Baptist in Walnut Creek, he was the interim pastor and was preaching when it came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What I can say is he preached a lot differently than I do. I don't preach a lot. But he, he, was, he, was, he was out here. He was passionate. He was charismatic. He was clearly committed to what he believed. And this drew me. This, this became a large part of why I came to know the Lord. I came to know the Lord as an adult at First Baptist uh, under his teaching. It was his passion in preaching and, confident, and confidence of what he believed that was contagious and it was encouraging for me. I remember even remarking to him, I appreciate his, his passionate preaching. But because I was eager to learn as much as I could, I began looking for content on how I would follow Christ better. I started to watch some preaching on the, and no moans here, Trinity Broadcasting Network. I was young. And as I stated, I was ill-equipped to discern. I, I, I think there was genuine preachers on that network. I, I say that in jest a little bit. And if any of you are tracking with what I am talking about, the passion and confidence of many of those on that network, if you've watched it before, um, is in abundance. I don't even know if that's still around, TBN. Anyway, what... Anyway, I became attracted to a few preachers, and in particular was, again, no moans, Kenneth Copeland. For those that don't know, he's a prosperity gospel preacher who peddles a false gospel. Um, well, I thought it would be a good idea to share my newfound teacher with Dr. LaCour, since they shared the same passion for Jesus. <laughs> what was fortunate for me, and, and much like John in, his, in his, uh, the way he's addressing his believers, um, and in concert with the fact that he is Dr. LaCour, or a.k.a. Dr. Love, he lovingly directed me away from what could have led me, uh, led me astray, led me away from the Lord. Fortunately, I had, I had him there to, to help me, guide me away from that. But important for us is that these teachers, and many like them, will use much of the same language you will hear here in church. Yet they will preach, preach a different Jesus. They will invoke the name of Jesus, yet misrepresent who he truly is. In the case of the first century church that John was addressing, they departed from the community because of their affinity with the unbelieving world. And as John will go on to say, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Again, there will be a genuineness to their appeal, that they may leverage some of the language we know, and in particular, use the name of Jesus himself. Yet for John, here, they are clearly prophets of a spirit other than the Holy Spirit. Here, the central test for discerning what the spirit was influencing the teachers was the very nature of Jesus Christ himself. 
For John, if the right spirit is testifying through someone, it will testify to the right Jesus, the Son of God, the anointed one of God, who became flesh even though he was God. I'm going to reread verses 2 and 3 again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now a little note on verse 3 there. It can sound confusing because he, uses a real, he really shortens it. He uses a shorthand. It says does not con- confess Jesus. What John is implying there is everything that he believes is true about Jesus. And specifically here in this context that he came in the flesh. So you can impose that there even though it's not in the original test. That it, he who does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. That, per, that spirit is not from God. John is clear there are only two spirits, the spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist. In his gospel, John makes it clear that the spirit of God will only reveal who Jesus truly is. Jesus says in chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Again, there will be those who claim to know Jesus Christ, even teach Jesus Christ, but are indeed teaching a different Jesus. I, I really struggle with actually saying that they are talking about Jesus because they, they, they are not. They're just using his name. Here, at some level, we want to expect the intentions of others to be good and noble. It's perhaps even fair to say many have what they believe is the right doctrine and will appear to be genuine. Yet the, the picture that Jesus himself gives in Matthew 7, verse 15, is that they have sheep's clothing, but are inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. This is because they fail to present Jesus Christ as the very way God has always intended to save those who believe. It is the only means by which we might be saved because there was no other way God had ever intended. Jesus, who became flesh, is the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3.15. He is the offspring of Abraham that brings the hope to the nations. And the suffering servant Isaiah, who was lifted up on our behalf, that we might have peace with God. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12 Peter boldly states that there is no salvation, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is why John rightly concludes the only other influencing spirit is that of the Antichrist, which is welcomed by the world and sabotages the truth about Jesus. This is the spiritual warfare for the fate of God's good creation and those who are made in his image. This is the chief tactic of the enemy from the beginning. Sabotage what God says. And keep God's will from taking place in those he made in his image. The words to Eve in Genesis 3, did God really say, are an all too effective tactic for those who reject God's gracious offer. Thus the enemy has never ceased attempting to keep those made in his image from listening to Yahweh and now listening to Jesus that they may repent believe and know they have eternal life. This is why John is so adamant about dealing with what the enemy is up to. 
Here the author of Hebrews is most helpful saying how God is speaking now. In the first two verses of chapter 1 we read, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The author will go on to say that he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the image of God. He is God among us. He is the one who shows, who demonstrates to us who God is because he is indeed God. And these opening words in the book of Hebrews is telling us that God has spoken most loudly, most clearly, and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. Further on in First uh, John chapter 5, verse 20, we read, And we know that the Son has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is why the enemy will undoubtedly attack the message of who Jesus Christ truly is because this is how God speaks to us most clearly and the only way by which we are redeemed. Theologian Gary Burge writes in his commentary the implications of the doctrine of Jesus Christ far better than I can express. And I'm going to read this a couple times because it takes a second to kind of, this was a little bit of scholarly language. I don't think it's too bad, but I just want us to catch what he's saying. He says, John sees this confession as central to Christian discipleship. If Jesus, the man from Nazareth, were not our divine Lord, his sacrifice on the cross would have limited importance. If he were not divine, we would have little confidence that the Father has been revealed to us. The nature of his discipleship would likewise be placed in question. Our human lives, our ethics are important because God has deemed our humanity important through the incarnation of his son. Let me read that one more time. John sees this confession as central Christian discipleship. If Jesus, the man from Nazareth, were not our divine Lord, his sacrifice on the cross would have limited importance. If he were not divine, he would have, we would have little confidence that the Father has revealed Uh, has been revealed to us. The nature of discipleship would likewise be placed in question. Our human lives, our ethics are important because God has deemed our humanity important through the incarnation of his son. This is the, as I was thinking about this passage and it was actually keeping me up at night and going over and over in mind, this is the thing that kept coming on to me how loudly the fact that Jesus Christ came, how loudly it speaks that he became flesh, that reality, that the need to understand, believe that, the emphasis that puts on what it matters, that it matters now to us. As John has, has been talking about continually up till now, this, the love for one another, the love for one another now, it is best expressed or best understood or it's best for us to um, wrestle with the fact that he came indeed as flesh because until we get that, we're not going to get the other part. We're not going to get the need to love one another the way we ought to. This leads us to the second movement in the text where in verses four through six, four through six we need to listen to the right spirit about who we are opposed to, who we are 
as opposed to those in the world. For John, it was vital they would be confident in who they are, specifically by understanding who was in them. In order to discern what spirit was in, in those that, that taught them, they need to, the assurance first that the right spirit was at work in them. They and we who trust in Christ must know we are now children of God because the spirit of truthfulness abides in us. Those who trust in Jesus have inherited new life, are born again, distinguished by the guarantee of eternal life because the spirit of God is testifying to us about the truth of who Jesus Christ is. This is confirmed by the active fellowship with God and one another that John says marks out God's spiritual community. Real pneumatic community. Stealing from Andrew last week, this affection in action demonstrates the key commandment John emphasizes in chapter 3 as the affirmation that we are indeed the children of God. Verse 23 and 24 of chapter 3, he says, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know uh, that abides in us by the spirit who he has given us. Greater is he in those that trust him because of these things, because they mean eternal life can be known now. The Spirit of God is necessary to both confirm the right message and the right experience in those who truly believe. In addressing those of the world, John's use of world here, it denotes a way of thinking that is contrary to the will of God. Perhaps more accurately, it is an active hostility to God's people and more importantly, Jesus Christ, because it rejects the notion that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. An important distinction for us to understand here is that we are indeed distinct from the world as the place where God created and deemed good. Um, let me restate that, I'm sorry. We need to understand the distinction that the, the world that God has created, he, has a lo- he does, he loves the world, the world he's created, the world that he created is very good, is different than the way of the world. And John makes this clear with the confines of this short letter, most clearly when he states that his atoning death was for the sins of the entire world. And do, so are some of the Iwana kids in here? Any? They want to quote John 3.16 with me? They're not paying attention. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. They use the New King James. I think I'm trying to stay with that. I think I have memorized something else. Thank you. Yeah, God indeed has love for the world. He wants to redeem the world. He wants to restore the world. It is the, it is the good creation that he created, but it's the way of the world that has taken this world in the wrong direction. Yet, the way of the world, and the way of the world is rebellious, even as John says in uh, chapter 519, is under the power of the evil one. They who are now in the world have demonstrated the spirit of God does not reside in them. Thus, the world will listen to itself in solidarity because it will seek affirming its way as good, though, in fact, it is bad and leads to death. Creating a God, even a form of Jesus in the image, in, in the image they need to make entire sense because it gives license to those that have left the community. They listen to the world because they reject Jesus Christ, who has come in the flesh, 
Because the things of this world have created the need for an idol that blesses their endeavors. Everything the world offers, what John briefly outlines in chapter 2 as the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, are more valuable than what abides forever. So a question for maybe all of us is where do we find ourselves today? Who are we listening to? Perhaps the message of assurance of eternal life is something new to you today. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here to talk about Christmas. We still have the Christmas decorations up. I'm going to pick on my wife just for a second here. She knew I was going to do this. But if you came to our house, there's, I think there's no shortage of about a dozen different nativity sets through our house. And one of the things you'll find unique is that the kings are not with the right set. They're off somewhere else because my wife takes Matthew quite literally. The kings can't be with the set, so you'll go and you'll see. But she doesn't want to not display the kings, so the kings are displaced, among other ones. Anyway, so the history of uh, nativity scenes, I didn't know this until I actually, I, for, uh, for the Martinez Detention Facility, I wrote a letter, and in there I wanted to, I wanted to reflect on Christmas, and, and so I did a little, uh, a little research on this, but apparently in the 13th century, the first time a nativity scene was used by Francis of Assisi, and he used it as a backdrop. It was, apparently it might have been a living nativity. No one's really sure, but all that to say that he, he wanted it as a backdrop to talk about Jesus' birth, about the incarnation. And what they say is that when he preached the message, that he could not even utter the name Jesus when he thought about it, when he thought, when the scene reminded him of, of, of what it meant. He had a hard time even uttering Jesus' name. In the Gospel of, according to Luke, we read how the glory of God shone around a group of shepherds, and they became terrified. Then a heavenly messenger of the Lord tells them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. It will bring great joy to all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Here is how you will know I am telling you the truth. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. The shepherds experienced the magnificent presence of God. They became terrified. Yet as the account continues, they go on and witness Jesus lying in a manger and told others what they had witnessed. The Gospel of John tells us clearly who the baby in the manger is because the world was made through him and that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only is God and is at the Father's side. The one at the Father's side has made him known. So the good news begins with God coming to us as a baby. And shepherds are the first to see. This is God, whose magnificent presence will terrify when he comes with all power and might. Yet God came as a baby, wrapped in uh, strips of cloth and placed in a feeding trough for animals. That God may be known. In the book of Hebrews, we read how Jesus has to be made like his people, fully human in every way. Then he could serve God as a kind and faithful high priest. And then he could pay for the sins of his people by dying for them. He himself suffered when he was tempted. Now he's able to help others who are being tempted. And as we go back to Luke's gospel, we read how Jesus died and was again wrapped in linen and placed in a tomb. 
So both in the beginning of Jesus' life and in his death, Jesus is clearly, truly human. He became flesh. He has experienced everything he needs to understand us completely, making him the perfect savior and the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. How is this? Well, in dying for us, he suffered the greatest injustice since Christ didn't have any sin, yet God made him become sin for us that we can be made right with God because of what Christ has done for us. If you've never experienced the gift of eternal life, it is the true Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are tired and carry heavy loads. I will give you rest. Become my servants. Learn from me. Listen to me. (laughs) A little freedom there, sorry. I am gentle and free of pride. You will find rest for your souls. Serving me is easy and my load is light. Come to Jesus because he lived and died and identifies with us and we find our identity in him. Come to Jesus because eternal life is in Jesus who made God made known to us. Come to Jesus because he was tempted in every way, though he remained perfect and can help us when we are tempted. Come to Jesus who willingly died for you and for me so that we might be forgiven and in his resurrection we may truly live again. Come to Jesus because in him God became one of us so that we might truly know him. This begs a question for all of us. Does your knowledge of him give you the assurance that that you then desire to know him more? In 2 Peter, he is encouraging his listeners similarly to, to assurance by exhorting them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is our knowledge of him that makes salvation real because eternal life is the knowledge of him. John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The very scriptures, the Holy Spirit inspired. They're there for us to listen to. Are that which tells Timothy, or tell, which Paul tells Timothy will make us wise for salvation in Jesus. And likewise, our very discipleship, as the quote said, is rooted in the knowledge of Christ because knowing him necessitates becoming like him. John's words in chapter 3 make it clear that positively that we will become like him when we see him when he uh, returns to reign. Negatively, if we never seek to know him, we cannot become like something we don't know something we don't seek. Again, positively, for those that believe, we have what the Spirit has given us in his word that we might know him. And lastly, we can love others appropriately with affection and action when you know the one who died for them as well. And perhaps the resolution to stomp on Zach's a little bit, maybe... Um, maybe give us um, something to look forward to as 2022 could be the year um, that we will listen to the Spirit of God in a way that we never have before about the one certain thing because it's only through our knowledge of Jesus Christ that we can truly know and experience God, truly know ourselves, and truly know and love others. Would you pray with me? God, we are 
humbled by the reality that you came. You came as a baby wrapped in linen cloth. The manger scene that sits here on my right that portrays what you did so that at the end of your life, which you freely gave for us, died for us, enthroned on a cross for us, that you might be again wrapped in linen and stuck in a tomb. When we think of that, when that becomes the thing we seek after, to know better, to know you better, in your word that speaks of you, that you say is about you, the very words the prophets spoke that reveal more clearly who you are and our need for you. I pray, God, that that is what we resolve to do this year and continuing to listen, to listen to what the Spirit of God is revealing and that he's revealing to us you, Jesus Christ. For it's your sake we pray. Amen.